0: The Good Old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season six of the Good Old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. As always, thank you very much for tuning in. This week we've got the third episode of our three-show run focusing on the Grateful Dead and their association with Madison Square Garden, and specifically the shows featured in the new box set In and Out of the Garden, Madison Square Garden, 81, 82, and 83. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast. Check out all of our past episodes, including the complete seasons one through five, You can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen where you like to listen. Please help us by subscribing, hit that like button, and leave us a review. Thank you very much. Have you checked out the transcripts that we have for many of the episodes in Seasons 1 through 5? Well, we've got them. Head over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index. Click the transcript link on the episode you'd like to explore. Well, the new Grateful Dead box set release is here. In and out of the garden, Madison Square Garden, 81, 82, 83. It boasts 17 CDs from six previously unreleased concerts recorded live in New York City at Madison Square Garden between 1981 and 1983. Also available is Madison Square Garden, New York, New York, 3981, a three-CD set featuring one full show from the box. Both titles are now available at Dead.net. Have you checked out the Grateful Dead server on Discord? Well, download the Discord app on your mobile device or computer and search for the public Grateful Dead server, click the Join button, find the Deadcast channel, and chat with fellow heads about the latest episode you just listened to. Jesse and I are on there checking things out, so come say hi. And finally, after a three-year hiatus, The Grateful Dead returned to cinemas worldwide for the 2022 Meetup at the Movies. This year features the previously unreleased concert film from April 17, 1972, captured live at the Tivoli Concert Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark. This is the 50th anniversary of The Dead's legendary Europe 72 tour, So get your friends together, come dance in the aisles to this epic show in movie theaters for two nights only on November 1st and November 5th. More information and tickets are available at meetupatthemovies.com. Well, everybody's got their favorite show that they attended. And of course, that usually includes some great memories from the show besides the music. So many New York heads caught shows at Madison Square Garden, including many of our guests today, and we get to hear some great stories from them in this episode. In a three-show run, typically the third show is on a Sunday, and as the saying goes, never miss a Sunday show. With that in mind, let's hand this off to Jesse Jarno.
1: To reiterate a point we made in our last episode, in the early 1980s, by most popular music standards, the Grateful Dead were in the wilderness. 1983 is the kind of year that gets fast forwarded in books and documentaries. No new albums, no cataclysmic busts or breakups. There weren't even any side project albums besides some lovely Mickey Hart drone records. Just four more tours and a few local runs. The Jerry Garcia band kept trucking, of course. Bobby Weir went to Europe twice, once with the Midnights and once without. It's what deadheads sometimes call a transition year. But they were all transition years. (laughs) But really, change was absolutely constant with the Grateful Dead, and went way beyond the set lists. It was practically genetic. It's hard to call any period of the dead's history lost, but there are a number of unusual archaeological artifacts to uncover and consider from 1983. The experimentation iterated at almost every level of the organization, a pattern of motion set in the 1960s and which continued in ways that might not be obvious. Let's start with one of the most microscopic, but no less symbolic. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager, Dave Lemieux.
2: The entire garden box was from Cassette Masters. In the fall of New Year's 1982, the Dead started recording, in addition to analog cassettes, they started recording digitally for the first time. Betamax videotapes in a Betamax videotape recorder, just like anybody would have at home, On the video track, there was this system called the F1 system, where on the video track of a Betamax tape, you would record digital audio. And then on the analog stereo audio tracks on there, you could also record two more tracks. This is what's known as
1: PCM recording, pulse code modulation. It worked with VHS and Betamax. Naturally, the dead chose the doomed but higher quality Betamax format.
2: So there are, there are a bunch of dead tapes in the vault from New Year's 82 onward till the late 80s where we have Betamax videotapes that the video track is digital audio and the the stereo audio track on those tapes is the audience mics in analog so it's it, they're kind of interesting tapes some sound pretty good they generally don't the mix is the same as what would be on the cassette they were recording you know, a split where they'd record a cassette and the, the beta, but they don't sound very robust. They sound thin. There are a tremendous amount of dropouts. Sometimes new tech doesn't quite pan out, but the dead were on it.
1: Just one of a million tiny changes happening in their world. Their constantly changing music was merely a reflection of the constantly changing situation around it.
2: For these these shows, the only ones that we had beta for were the garden show with uh, the the uh, 83 shows and they didn't sound nearly as good as the, the cassette masters so we we use the cassette on these ones and they sound fantastic full mixes
3: flight of the seabirds scattered like lost words through the storm.
2: are very full sound, great keyboards on the everything. They're, they're great mixes. Um, everything is present where it should be. Uh, and for a cassette, I think that's a testament to Dan Healy, and it's a testament to Madison Square Garden that the venue sounds so good that it comes through in the in the board tapes of of how good it sounds.
1: Another year, another pair of sold-out shows at Madison Square Garden.
2: Just jump,
1: The dead weren't shifting too many units in 1983, give or take the dependable sales of their deep and accumulated back catalogs. They were a cult band whose members apparently used their downtime to make New Age drone records. But that wasn't the point. Even a melon could recognize that the healthiest part of the dead's business in 1983, and the traditional metric by which the dead weren't in the wilderness, was their ticket sales. And it was from there, in 1983, that they began to build their own civilization. From Ice Nine Publishing, please welcome Alan Trist.
4: With The Grateful Dead, the, the demand for tickets and trying to get in their first was such a big hassle that, in a way, doing it ourselves was the the easiest route, rather than going through the Ticketmaster or any of the agencies, which wouldn't have been able to handle the personal side of it, which was so much a part of Deadheads Unite.
1: In February 1983, Steve Marcus, a young Dead fan and former employee of the Bay Area Seating Service, was brought on board to help organize mail-order tickets for the March Benefit shows at the Warfield in San Francisco. The band had tried mail-order once before in 1976, but it didn't totally work. This time it did. Marcus expected the job to last six weeks, but found himself employed for the next dozen years and beyond. With the band, he established Grateful Dead ticket sales, one of the dead's most radical and consequential business moves. By the end of the year, they would even start selling books of tickets to entire tours. Considered from the most basic level, either economically or just as like a regular human, why wouldn't the dead want to make life as easy as possible for their best customers? Here's Jerry Garcia describing deadheads to Studs Terkel and Abe Peck on Chicago's WFMT in 1979.
5: And they go through tremendous adventures sometimes, getting to a Grateful Dead concert. Oh. Sometimes they travel hundreds and hundreds of miles. And after enough of these experiences, they get to know each other as a little internal yeah, community. Yeah, you know, they, they bump into each other and they get to meet each other. And, uh, and uh, pretty soon
1: they have a whole lot of stories. The same spring season in 1983 that the Dead established Grateful Dead ticket sales came the publication by Quill Books of New York of the official book of the Deadheads. Edited by the late poster historian Paul Grushkin, it's an overflowing scrapbook of Deadhead ephemera, photographs, folklore, doggerel deep band history, never seen photographs, and more. It could keep Deadheads busy for months, just decoding it all. Thanks to Eric Nelson, host of the Grateful Dead Zone on K-Squid in Santa Cruz, here's what Jerry Garcia had to say about it to MTV in 1983.
5: It's really Paul's effort. It's his work and, and, and his friends and uh, input from other Deadheads and stuff like that. It's it's really the Deadheads. It's their publication, uh, you know, in that sense. It's not, not really ours. It's, it's It's uh, them addressing themselves. I think that that is really proper. I think that's appropriate. I'd be a little bit afraid of something, of us addressing them. Though the Grateful Dead movie
1: had put the spotlight on Deadheads, like Greg, the dancer in the front row, and newspapers had focused on the fan base, especially after the band's return to the road in 1976, the official book of the Deadheads was the first work that spent time exclusively in the world surrounding the band. I highly recommend it if you can find a used copy somewhere. So does Jerry. It's a great browsing
5: book, yeah. and it also goes right through beginning to end, too, pretty well. Mm-hmm. I've done, taken it both ways, and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a reference book in a way. I, I, it's nice to go back to and just look stuff up in it.
1: One of Garcia's big takeaways from the book was that he could relate pretty well to Deadheads.
5: Our primary thrust is, has always been pretty much the same for some reason. It's, it, it, it really just has to do with taking your friends along with you. And, uh, and, and preferring to operate, to function that way than to choose something more expedient or more efficient or something like that.
1: If it wasn't so accidental and deadlike, the whole thing might sound like a contrived marketing campaign. Authorize a flattering book about how fun it is to be a fan of your band, while also organizing a way to more efficiently sell ticket packages? In the long improvisation of the Grateful Dead's business, it was a pretty sweet passage. But it would have been hard to miss. Last episode, we talked about the continued emergence of the Grateful Dead scene. And by 1983, the wilderness was in full summertime bloom. Please welcome back, your pal and ours, Eric Schwartz, host of Lone Star Dead on KRON in Dallas.
6: I was heavily embedded by 83. I saw every single show that year, except the first couple. And I missed New Year's that year because after seeing 60 shows, I was so fun. I couldn't get it together to go to New Year's. I was a senior that year, and I got out of high school that summer, so fall 83, I was able to do without worrying about getting back to high school. It was like Jerry described, you know, he's like, people ask him why people do, and He's like, you know, I think we're just like the last bit of Wild West you can grab in America right now, you know? I mean, you can print $500 worth of tape labels and make $10,000 off them, you know?
1: Eric is in no way being metaphorical.
6: I made these in high school printing class with a ballpoint pen. I mean, no, there's nothing digital about them at all. And I used to be able to travel with a metal printing plate and go to Kinko's and print for a page at five cents a page. You know, so they were like a penny a piece. And we were selling them for a dollar a dozen. So I was making my money 10 times back. And I probably did make more money than my mom that year. I mean, I don't know what a, you know a single mom's salary was in 1983, but I know I printed up 10,000 tape labels and didn't come home with any. in eight months. I made, made and spent 10,000 10, $10, 1983 dollars. And there were, I mean, the, the, there was no shakedown. Was, to sell these, we would grab a handful, walk up and down the parking lots, and if I talked to a show where there was 10,000 people and talked to 2,000 of them, 200 of them gave me a dollar. And that was a day's pay. Motel 6 was $18. Gas was 80 cents. So we lived like kings. We really did.
1: Last episode, we discussed how the zine scene crystallized in the early 1980s. And by 1983, the DIY publications Around the Dead were flourishing, including the Tour 1 sheet called Michael, published by Michael Linna. Please welcome back John Leopold. In 82, we had discovered
7: this outfit called Laser Beam Graphic, which had done a picture of the dead on the front and a a list of all the shows from the previous year. So in 1983, we did one,
1: and this is how we paid to go to shows. Like Eric Schwartz, John and his twin brother Dave graduated from high school that June and went on summer tour. Dave was the Grateful Dead of penmanship, as he was called. At dead.net slash deadcast, we've posted a link to their online store for Print Knot where you can still pick up some of Dave's stunning set list posters. We would have 12 heads in a room saying we would sell our set list pictures. You could sell
7: like 100 of them a night or something. They only cost a buck. And that would pay for our ticket, our food, our gas, and our portion of the hotel room. We weren't weren't there trying to like make money. We were just trying to pay for the experience. In 83, uh, we were definitely into, you know, we were part of the community and Handing out stuff for free was happening in lots of different places. Michael was one of those places. So we started handing out these sheets. If you were in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or New York, or you going to a show, you may not know what they played in Las Vegas unless someone showed up with a tape. So these were sheets that we made and handed out. And then for more copies, write to us at our, at, that's my parents' house, 3600 Green. And then there's little information here shadow boxing is a new Bobby tune could be called my brother Esau by 83. We, we had definitely met Michael. One of the things that I think was interesting about the time period of the early eighties is it's the formation of new ways of community. And so you start seeing Michael might've been the first that had mimeograph sheets that had set list on it. That was pretty new. Relics magazine didn't put song list in their issues as far as I can remember. So the idea that people were sort of keeping set lists and then Michael was handing out these stickers, this was part of the way we got to know Michael and then other heads, right? I mean, you would try to find out what was played and you'd have to meet people and then you'd start getting phone calls after the shows. And there was a time when we went off to college and we came home and my dad said, I can't believe it. One of your friends called at one o'clock in the morning to tell us what they played. And I said, Oh, we said, really? And he goes, I don't know what was worse, that they called at one o'clock in the morning or that I wrote it all down.
6: 83 <laughs> was when we started looking for Michael stickers and seeing him at every show. Every day after the show, we'd run home and or run to the car and put our put our yeah, put our sticker in our book and, and try to remember the set list. And he started doing the stickers in 83 in the newsletters. And from what I remember, he was like funding his tour by refereeing bridge tournaments, like organizing and getting people to pay for registration fees to play bridge professionally or semi-professionally. And it was just his thing to share. He just was like, I'm going to print stickers up for every." And I don't know who Ethan was at all. They all st- stickers always said Ethan and Michael. And I don't really know who that was, but it was our goal every show to find Michael to get a sticker for our tour book and a newsletter and to see what had happened or what's gonna happen. And we knew what was happening because we were there, but just to read about it and, and, and see it in print.
7: Michael was part of this ever-growing community of people who were connected. And Michael was a great connector of folks. He had great people skills and he was deeply committed to the, sort of the community. And so as he met people along the way, he would try to link them up, right? And sometimes he would give you stickers to hand out and give you newsletters to hand out. He was just sort of sharing the wealth. And so he told us about this couple in Micronesia. And we would make tapes and we sent them these set list pictures and we would tell them stories about what was happening at the shows. And they would write us back these really, you know, uh, cool, groovy letters. And it was just like a deadhead uh, pen pal relationship. And then I think I met them at a show then there were things like this, this Deadhead Directory. This is how you found out where the heads were in the town you were going to when you were going to go see the
1: show. Published out of Natick, Massachusetts for a few years starting in 1983, the Deadhead's directory included a polite note that it was not an open invitation for house guests. Eric Schwartz.
6: I was selling so in search for Phil Brown, who, you know, the three top. Grateful Dead t-shirt artists that didn't use a single bit of Grateful Dead iconography in their work, but were most, you know, was Mikio, Phil Brown, and Ed Donaghan, although Ed kind of turned a few things into his own design. Chris made, there was uh, Gary Cronin's 58 Grateful Dead songs, the original version before it was 100, but he took the little guy with the love light and made a t-shirt with the love light guy, and it was like, Everybody was biting each other's work because that, there was nothing digital. It was all just, there's a poster. We'll, we'll take a little piece of that and turn it into a t-shirt.
1: In the 21st century, the artifacts of the Grateful Dead parking lot in the early 1980s have an enormous pull. Let's check out the prices on eBay. Four decades later, the artists Elijah Funk and Alex Ross of Online Ceramics continue the visual conversation that began across t-shirts in the 70s, and especially the early 80s. Elijah Funk.
8: It almost is uh, not only conversational in a way and saying like, I love this thing and like appreciating and honoring something, but it's also functional in the sense, in like this in like a true folk art way where it's like, this serves a purpose to my existence because I'm making and selling this thing in order to get down the road for something that I love so much. So it's almost like the ultimate fan art in a way, because it also serves the person that made it back
2: in a strange way. My favorite stuff is obviously designed by someone who doesn't know how to design. And it's like they just, they just created this shirt so they could get to the next show. And they had a friend that had a screen print this, And they did their best to make artwork. If you can find a used copy,
1: Rin Tanaka published a wonderful book a number of years ago, the fourth in the My Freedom series titled 1970s Hippie Fashion and Grateful Dead T-Shirts, which contains a chronological guide to many major parking lot shirts, You won't find online ceramics in there, at least until a revised edition comes out. Or a new open source project titled the Deadhead Dress Archive, which aims to document dead fashion far beyond just t-shirts and is requesting that people send in their photos. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. The both of the online ceramics artists came of age in the post-Garcia years. The music continues to speak to them in the present tense. Alex Ross arrived at the dead
2: through psychedelics. The dead understood me in a way that other people didn't like, it was like the music understood what I was experiencing and I wasn't around a lot of people I was tripping alone some of the times I didn't have like a real community in that world yet so it was like the dead was kind of my community like within psychedelics and like through that it like just
8: intr
1: started to like really seep into my art some might argue that the continued presence of psychedelics helps keep the world around the dead very much active and in the present tense. It's very
8: much alive. You can like go visit your tape collection anytime, and it's 1973, it's 1982. The artwork changes as the time goes on, too, because technology is catching up. In, like whatever way that means, like screen printing technology, computer technology, the early 90s, late 80s stuff like, is so sick because people are trying to incorporate computers into the artwork. It takes a turn that like now is visually, it's almost like the MIDI technology in the music.
1: In our Playing Dead episodes, we explored how the Dead's music became a springboard for musicians, in large part because it encouraged constant change. Online ceramics and others do the same with the Dead's iconography.
8: It never feels like I'm holding reverence to something from the past. It feels like a very active participatory exploratory i am like living in these songs like often i will only listen to the grateful dead if i'm making shirts about the grateful dead like i have to exist within it and it's it's living in me and i'm living in it and it's really i can almost picture the world in which we're going into like there's certain shirts that are like dark star to me like there's certain shirts that are cowboy like bobby's cowboy songs to me and like, I'm not saying it's just that song. I'm saying that the world that's within that song, you can enter through the art. So it's like, it's not visionary art. It wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like an Alex Gray thing where I'm like picturing things, but it's just, it's a way to participate within the song. And it makes, it makes me feel like I'm like an active participant in the Grateful Dead, if that makes sense. Like, I don't feel like I'm like, making fan art, I feel like I'm riding along and joining in this thing. To whatever like major or minor scale that is, it doesn't really matter.
1: T-shirts and tapes are merely artifacts of an unfolding world. Back in 1983, life was starting to get entertaining in the dead parking lot. Eric Schwartz.
6: Eric Price and Mark Schreier and Tom Greenleaf, may he rest in peace, were the fire jugglers, fire juggling in the parking lot. That was their hustle. Spring, summer, fall 83. I mean, that, when I jumped into their van filled with torches and kerosene, it was really, really a stinky ride. But that was their hustle, man. Mark was like three feet, nothing. And Eric was a big guy, and Mark would be like on Eric's shoulders, juggling fire pins and devil sticks. And they did great. They got a huge crowd.
1: It was a small, weird tour family.
6: Chris Goodspace, he had a van called the Goodspace Van. He was older than us. And, and thank God for the older people, man. Chris was just an older dude that had a van, had his tour shit together. And we, we just latched onto him. And we'd all gather after a show and look at a road map and go, all right, we've got 800 miles to go. Let's pick a campsite. We'll all meet there. 90% of the times we all met there. <laughs> there was a couple of large tour buses. People were tricking buses and vans out. At that point, you'd see those more like Oregon, you know, like Oregon County Fair type situations, not as much on the East Coast. Guy named Whitefeather, Wind Dancer. I mean, these were older deadheads that, I mean, Whitefeather started seeing shows in Worcester, Mass in 1969. And by 1983, he'd already had hundred two under his belt, at least several hundred. So these older people, we kind of took our cues from. Then there was Overthrow magazine, which was like a real radical yippie kind of publication. And they used to literally publish major oil and gas companies' executives' calling card numbers.
1: Overthrow was published out of 9 Bleecker Street in Manhattan, just across the Bowery, and practically in Lugian distance from the legendary punk dive CBGB. 9 Bleecker Street was also the world headquarters of the Yippies, Founded on New Year's 1967-1968 by Abby Hoffman, Paul Krasner, Jerry Rubin, and friends, in 1983, the Ippies were still making trouble.
6: It was like, okay, here's, here's a bunch of calling cards. that They should work. Next thing you know, you, you're able to call home on these calling cards. There was a lot of scamming going on. But like I said, we just took the cues from our elders, starting with the dead just being pranksters and kind of pranked our way across the country.
5: We take it as least as seriously as anybody else does. But I, and I think that they, uh, even at their most uh, obsessive and crazed, uh, also have a certain sense of humor
1: about it, too, which, is, which you have to have, and, and we have that, too. A few episodes back, promoter John Scher summarized the Dead's approach to the production of their live shows. Always trying to make it better, better, better. Dan English of Morpheus Lights joined lighting director Candice Brightman on the road in 1982. After his first few months with the band, he saw the future of lights
9: right between 82 and 83 is when moving lights were introduced to the rock and roll industry, it's computerized lighting. And my company, Morpheus, was the second company to have it. The first company was very light, Genesis and that whole thing. Well, six or eight months later, Morpheus had moving lights. My boss, John Richardson, one day he walked in the office and he said, I just read this article. Cats on Broadway has this brand new lighting controller and it does a hundred channels and a hundred channels all laid out on a computer screen. And you can go from cue to cue and have four different windows to do these different cues. So if we just line up the lights for this channel's pan and this channel's tilt and this channel's this color, and I think each light has like 10 functions, then we could do these separate, separate lights with a hundred channels of control. Now, some lights, there are lights that have more than a hundred channels of control now. <laughs> but that was enough to get the thing rolling. And one of the first shows that my boss did was Diva. So they played at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium and Candace and I went to see them. And she saw that and she, her mind was blown. And she was like, we've got to have this. Now, I don't know what we're going to do with them, but we've got to have it. I've been doing a few shows here and there because the schedule, the Dead Touring schedule, wasn't that taxing. So it wasn't like I was busy all the time. So I was out doing other shows for Morpheus. I did Paul Anka and even worked on the setup for Barry Manilow and things like that. And so I got the hang of running the moving lights. So I brought the moving lights to the Grateful Dead, and the first show with the moving lights was the Warfield Theater in 1983. The first run, we took 13 moving lights out, and you know, if 10 or 12, 10 or 11 of them worked at the end of the show,
1: we were like, "Wow, what a successful night!" It was surely one of the first computers to appear regularly at a rock and roll sound and light board.
9: One of those really early computer, the monitor was built in, had some keyboard, had a, had a keyboard that was mostly numeric, but it was specifically built to do lighting. And it was made, Klegel brothers made it, they aren't even in business. Each channel had a zero to 10 voltage, and you, you're back there at the patching it with, like, these spaghetti wires. Like, picture the old telephone where you patched the wire to get the things. So, yeah, we used to patch up all these huge boxes.
1: Dan English joined Candace by the soundboard in 1983, working alongside sound engineer Dan Healy.
9: Dan Healy had a very specific distance that he wanted to be from the front of the stage. I want to say it was 90 feet, but it might have been 78 feet something like that. But it was something they measured every day. We put the soundboard and Candace was right next to him, right on the left of him, right in the center of the arena. And then later when we added a little station for me, I kind of sidecar to her left.
1: The system required programming for every show. You focused them during the day and you made
9: all these cues and then you could replicate them. And Candace and I had sort of a numbering system and Different, different looks for different things and then uh, different flyouts, stuff like that. Every day you had to update the focusing and I kind of came up with a little system where you could focus a few different places and then you could compile that and you could sit out there at the machine and compile it all into the rest of your show. And since, of course, all that's been streamlined,
1: it didn't take much for Dan to become a fan of the music.
9: It was really great because as I learned the music, which was not, not especially easy, but as I learned how to do light like, under Candace's tutelage and the things that she wanted to see and how, how we did it, I got to operate the, the moving lights that were around on the back. So they had a particular look and, and then feel to them as they moved whereas she was doing all the other accents and different things and some wide audience flashes. And then later on, we both had our own moving lights and hers were going out in the audience doing all these things and mine were on stage hitting cues. Of course, there was no satellites, So Candace and I had uh, little headsets and we were talking to each other. Even though we're next to each other, just because of how loud everything was we would talk on headsets and she was really good at knowing what song was coming up next or what she thought might come up or identifying it once it actually someone started playing the licks of a song she said, No, oh, that's going to be trucking."
1: and so then we sort of had some parameters on how it was going to go out in the crowd deadheads were doing their own tech experiments in 83 after lugging his home stereo on tour a few times, Charlie Miller officially became a taper.
10: When I was doing the spring tour in 83, my mom gave me her, her credit card with a note authorizing me to, to use it. And she said, this is in case of an emergency. And I came home and said I had an emergency. I had to buy a D6 and batteries and tapes. In 83, I was patching and like I would try something each night and... And then like one night in the middle of the show, at set break, I switched mics and then stuck with, that was, uh, went from buyer M one sixties to Sennheiser four hundred and twenty ones, And then I was on a 421 kick for the rest of the tour. And like the, we got to Philly and I had a seat that was like about 10, 15 rows in front of the board, but it was on the right center on the right side of the aisle. So it was a little bit more right than center. And I'm sitting in my seat and sky shows up next to me in a business suit his briefcase and i'm like oh great i'm never gonna find a taper to patch into you know he opens up his briefcase and he had a mic stand that came folded up into a big thing he had his his cs421s a d5 a vial of coke and you know we i mean it was great it's like it doesn't matter where you were sitting you'd always find someone near you to patch into
1: a handsome new book from anthology editions collects an overview of artifacts from the deadhead cassette era titled After All is Said and Done, Taping the Grateful Dead, by Mark A. Rodriguez. What began as an art project to collect one taped copy of every Dead show turned into an impressive archival book with a thorough array of labels, also known as J-cards, plus nearly 200 pages of taper interviews and ephemera. If you're a Dead freak, you want it. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. Please welcome to the Deadcast Mark Rodriguez, who like us is fascinated by
11: taping culture in the 1980s especially during that time there was a lot of experimentation with kind of how to set up a mic and how to actually like make a really good recording given the advancements in technology like it's like you have the frontiersmen who are like real to real and audio cassette recording and like trying to figure out the mic setup but they're not exactly like audio engineers but by the 80s, I think you get more more audio engineer type people or people that are like even doing that as a profession that are like, oh, you know, you want this type of mic. But the focus of Mark's book is very much the labels themselves. The print quality on a lot of them sometimes is like kind of astounding. Just speaking from an art perspective, it's like obviously like on a book press, so there's like indentation, there's like this nice subtle, like two color layout. So, you know, a lot of time has been spent kind of planning it or like even thermographic technology, which is like the puffy paint of like printing, you know, it's like always kind of raised and like glossy. The thermographic ink expands in an unpredictable way. So sometimes it's like blotchy, but it comes out kind of slick there's even like the Xerox ones that I can respect from a different perspective. It's like, oh, this looks like, you know, very punk.
1: Looking through Mark's book is a reminder that the people who loved live dead tapes encompassed far
11: more than just the obsessive tapers who made them. There's different types of J cards, right? And there's different types of recordings. So, and there's different types of deadheads. So, A, I met a bunch of different types of deadheads. There's like really sloppy, like probably crusty kind of drugged out people that didn't have real archival organization or collecting organization to their bloodstream let's say and like not that they're bad people for that it's just like it wasn't that it wasn't as important to like keep everything clean and organized and then you have like the opposite side of the spectrum which is like someone who's like deep into audio and like what the source is and where they're getting it. And maybe they also started collecting in the seventies. So like their collection is a little bit more precious and like curated, let's say. You know, what I found out was like the more boring the J card is and like the more straightforward the information is notated on the J card, probably the better the recording is actually. There were a lot of dead scenes by 1983 from the committed to the curious, as they say.
1: There was the scene surrounding the band. There was the scene of tour heads, and there were local pockets of deadheads. Today, Lee Greenfeld is going to be our avatar for a particular and fascinating generation of New York dead freaks. Several generations, actually. In 1983, he was 12 years old.
12: My first dead records were from my parents. My dad's a huge record was a huge record collector, more a jazz guy. But he, in the 60s, he saw a lot of a lot of bands. I assume he saw the Dead in the 60s. Never actually asked him. But he, when I was a kid, I at that point, I had a copy of Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, and Europe 72.
1: Lee was of the first generation where it was possible to get into the dead through your parents, give or take a few outliers like Elvis Costello, which we heard about in our Bickershaw Festival episode last season.
12: I was hanging out in Central Park in the, in the early 80s. Up west, I used to hang out in Sheep's Meadow and, and uh, Monument, and everyone up there was into the dead. And there was... St- City kids—they were like tough kids, but they were deadheads too. I knew a lot of graffiti writers. I was a graffiti writer. I knew a lot of graffiti writers who were into the dead, which blows a lot of like the history away. Everyone kind of paints graffiti as like just this uh, tangential thing to hip hop, but you know it existed before hip hop, existed before rap, and there was plenty of kids that were definitely into the dead.
1: Lee was a member of the community of New York youth known as the Parkies. I wrote extensively about the Parkies in my book, Heads, A Biography of Psychedelic America. Starting in the late 60s, the Parkies' main hangs were Bethesda Fountain, the Nomburg Bandshell, and just above and behind it, Rumsey Playfield, now the home of Summer Stage, where the Parkies wrote graffiti, skateboarded, played Frisbee, and became an important east-west connection point in the LSD distribution network. One of the earliest nodes was a teenage graffiti writer named Chad Stickney, His graffiti tag was LSD Ohm, founder of the Rebels, who passed the torch to friends like Bill Rock, founder of the Rolling Thunder Writers, named for Mickey Hart's 1972 album.
12: Those guys were fucking legendary. I mean, he's one of my favorites. Chad's like, I mean, his stuff was still around on the Upper West Side also in the early 80s. So I started hanging out on the Upper West Side in like 83, 84, 85. Bill Rock, all the R2W guys were like, they were a big deal. and I loved their art the most too because... Outside of what I grew up with, which was the Tags in Brooklyn, because they incorporated a lot of like underground comic artwork in their pieces, and it was psychedelic.
1: Another serious deadhead who came up through the Central Park scene is Johnny Dwork, co-founder of Dupree's Diamond News. In the 70s, he'd found his world with the Frisbee players over on Frisbee Hill.
13: Frisbee Hill is this little hill that's a minute's walk from the band show at Central Park and also a minute's walk from Bethesda Fountain, which was a really, really vibrant hangout scene in the 1960s. Before it was summer stage, it was this weird little area where you had to climb up these steps behind the bandshell, and then you got to this beautiful little covered area that was just for sitting. And there was, uh, it was a shade garden that was completely covered by 100-year-old wisteria vines. And, of course, in the spring, the entire thing was covered with with wisteria blossoms, which was so jaw-droppingly, psychedelically awesome that it was hard to see. It was, like, not on any main path, like the carriage path, none of the main walkways. It was behind the bandshell. And so, like, most people who went through Central Park didn't see it. But the freaks found it. And that's the place where people would go to smoke pot and to sell drugs and to trip and to lie there amidst the wisteria in the spring and sort of have this hidden little world. The cop cars, when
1: they parked in Central Park, you couldn't really see what was going up there. So it's like a world within a world. If you've attended a show at Central Park Summer Stage, that's the area you pass through when you exit the venue through the southwest corner.
12: When I started going to Central Park in the 80s, way after that era, it was still great. Like the the vibe in Sheep's Meadow was just so cool because we had kids from every place in New York, including Brooklyn. I ended up going to school in the Upper West Side, but even before I went to school, and the park still had like a vibe, you know, and it was like a really cool, mixed, true melting pot in New York, both stylistically if people were into like you know classic rock you know that's what we used to just call it all then or punk rock or hip early hip-hop black white puerto rican whatever everyone kind of like central park like it was a pretty magical when you walked through
13: central park at that point there was this confluence of pretty distinct subcultures and you would just walking through that area, be exposed to all of them. There were, uh, there was the burgeoning uh, disco roller skate scene, which also had a crossover scene with uh, the gay scene in New York uh, at the time, which was just really starting starting to blossom. You had the Frisbee players that were this combination uh, on Frisbee Hill of the sort of counterculture, alternative sport jocks who had found a sport that they could call their own. And then you had the freak scene, the 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 hippies that were uh,
1: sort of intermingled between uh, all of these different scenes. Though some of the faces and tags had changed, the Deadhead graffiti scene was still going strong in the early '80s.
12: There was a crew called Acid Writers. The name right there gives you a clue, which was started by Chris Two Seventeen. His younger brother wrote Sand, was a good friend of mine, so he was also a Deadhead. His buddy Dyer, who was another one, he was a Deadhead. Like I mean, these guys would go to the train yards, eight, you know, in the early to mid '80s. Dead shirts, long hair. I mean, Sand had like long blonde hair and he was a graffiti writer and he got up like he was a very famous writer at the time those guys on the Upper west side were all into the dead oddly enough steve miller band was a big one especially the first record it's actually a killer record yeah and hot tuna hot tuna was another huge huge upper west side band massive there's this guy i knew on in spanish harlem actually on 96th street this guy willie who's also a graffiti writer was also a deadhead who Unfortunately died many. One of my earliest friends who died drug drug related. He had like
1: tons of dead tapes. And so he would like let me just come over there and like we'd smoke weed and I'd just dupe tapes from him. And just like New York was home to young deadheads, it was home to young professional deadheads. Eric Pooley is about ten years older than Lee. At the time of the March 1981 episodes, he'd just graduated from college, and in 1983, he'd moved to New York and gotten a pretty perfect entry-level gig in New York media.
14: I got a job as a freelance fact checker at New York Magazine and, and moved into town. In those days, people at New York Magazine lo- knew that I liked the dead, but they did not approve, right? The music editor there, and I wrote some music pieces, but it wasn't until they had their resurgence in 87 that I could interest New York Magazine in a piece about the dead. And it took a couple of years before it happened.
1: Eric would interview Garcia in 1991, which we heard about in our 1981 episode. He made it to the first night of the garden in 1983.
14: This may have been like my only show of 83. My relationship with the dead really changed because they were like an oasis of beauty and peace in this city that I was working my ass off in and making no money and struggling to survive, you know, the whole New York City trip. And the garden shows were always memorable. I would have left the office and probably wore jeans to work and probably had a, a dead t-shirt under my office shirt or changed in the bathroom or something like that. And the New York Magazine office was at 41st and 2nd in those days. I just walk straight across, right? The bars are filled with deadheads, the streets are filled with deadheads, and and the garden has these the covered area on the Seventh Avenue side, which is actually the entrance to Penn Station. But if there's kind of the awning and the overhang, and there'd be gazillions of people under the overhang, and you'd mill about and try to find people you knew and usually succeed.
1: I only saw the dead at the garden once, in 1994. Coming into Penn Station from Long Island, the conductor announced, last stop, Terrapin Station. There were lots of ways to get to a dead show. Rich
15: Farrell came by boat. 1983, I'm 19 years old. I'm out at sea as a cadet with a good buddy of mine who turned me on to some fantastic music. I was previously into heavy metal and the blues, but he happened to turn me on to a a band called the Grateful Dead, who I was quite receptive to. And these guys sounded pretty good. And we were just young guys uh, having the time of our life in the Mediterranean Ocean uh, at various ports of call. And when we reached Italy, it was uh, the last stop. And we called home and found out that we were going to miss Grateful Dead at Madison Square Garden by probably two days. So we were... Pretty bummed out on the way back, on the trip back. And uh, one day we got a, uh, the ship got a telex from the, the ship owning office saying to speed up, must get to New York by October 11th. Well, the captain uh, put his foot on, uh, on the accelerator and, and voila, we got there right at the morning of October 11th. We jumped off the ship as the moment they let us. We jumped on a subway from uh, Brooklyn into Manhattan. First person we saw in Manhattan had tickets to sell us when we got above ground. And wouldn't you know it, I found myself at my very first Grateful Dead show after coming all the way across the sea from uh, from Italy. The fall tour was only two shows old in which Farrell's ship
1: came in, and The Dead pulled into Madison Square Garden for Tuesday and Wednesday shows. The band had toured in the early summer and late summer, Wrapping up outside Santa Cruz on September 24th, with the next leg starting back east two weeks later. Eric Schwartz.
6: Richmond and Greensboro was the opening of fall tour, October 8th and 9th.
1: John and Dave Leopold were ostensibly college freshmen.
7: The fall of 83, we started college. And it was funny, before we went to college, my father sat us down and he goes, boys, you're going to college. You're not going on tour. You're supposed to go to classes. You're not supposed to go to Grateful Dead shows. So I'm counting on you. And we did all right. We went to both the college and shows. So Dave went to a few more. It was during his brief period where he was a taper. And I think that the Madison Square Garden show may have been the only East Coast show that I ever went to without him. He didn't make it. He, He had gone to Richmond and Greensboro
1: and
6: he went to Hartford.
1: Dave Leopold surely reported the following news to his brother that night. Eric Schwartz was an ear witness.
6: In Greensboro, there was a rustle in the parking lot. They're sound checking St. Stephen. So we all just tore ass to the back of the venue so we could hear them sound checking St. Stephen.
1: Dan English from Morpheus Lights.
9: They did sound check every so often, but I mean, certainly not regularly. I would say, It was a very rare circumstance that I remember.
1: If you were in the know, you were in the know. In the new In and Out of the Garden box, you can see some of Larry Price's handwritten set lists. His deadhead mentor, Teddy, pulled him aside on the way into the show.
14: I remember walking into the show and Teddy goes, just wait, wait till what you And he He predicted it. And so for me, the energy for that particular show was, was palpable. It, it, it was it was crackling. I don't know if that was Teddy just telling this youngster to get excited for another show, you know. Because Teddy's favorite line was "Leave your expectations at the door." He said that for his whole life about shows. You're gonna get what you're gonna get. But this is one of the few times he said, "Watch what you're gonna get tonight."
1: Teddy also helped in the distribution of set lists.
14: He worked for oh man maybe City or Chase, decent level position where they had access to computers that would print back then. Just sort of rare in '83. And Teddy would come out and each day the print would get smaller and smaller with the set list from the night before. And he would hand like, you know, come with a whack of a hundred of them. That's how he spent his day at work.
1: There's no way to do the math, but for every committed head like Teddy or Eric Schwartz or John and Dave Leopold, there were young freaks seeing their first shows. Lee Greenfeld.
12: I remember he took the train to 34th and then just sees of people like more, more tie-dye shirts than I've ever seen clouds of pot smoke, obviously. There was always something electric about going to Madison Square Garden, just in general, because it was like these tribes of people showing up and, you, and it was Madison Square Garden, you know, taking the train to the city and seeing all of the people for whatever show it would be, the dead in particular, just like hordes of people. And like
1: just that experience stays with you. Like the other five shows on the In and Out of the Garden box, the 83 MSG gigs were on school nights. Eric Schwartz.
6: There wasn't any shakedown street to begin with. So, you know, we did the same thing. We walked around with our stuff, tried to sell our gear. There's no denying you're in New York City when you walk out the door in the morning and put your foot on the ground. It's just the world goes by just that much faster and it's happening that much and more intense.
1: Eric Pooley.
14: The garden was extraordinary in all kinds of ways. Your parking lot was the streets of the West Side, Midtown. And those were the years before there was a kind of a formal shakedown. But the lot was in the West 30s and uh, everybody was in the streets along with the scalpers and the cops on horseback who could be kind of scary. Promoter John Cher,
16: The New York City cops, who I'm a fan of, are pretty good keeping people moving outside the garden. I'm sure there were probably a few thousand people always outside, but the New York city police kept them moving. So they were walking around, they weren't gathering in one big group. So it all worked fine. I was very sensitive about, about security, both to make sure there were no problems and to make sure that the security guards, which worked for the garden, we had no control over, we were being kind and and gentle. We controlled the backstage security. Basically, our security crew from the Capitol did that, so they knew how to behave and, and, and what to do.
14: Folks would be petting the horses, and I can remember cops chasing people. I never got chased, but it was always a little tense trying to get into the garden. You have to contend with this city to get inside where it's safe. And there were people around preying on the, on the deadheads. In 1981, Eric
1: Pooley had easily scored a ticket outside. He didn't have the same luck in 83.
14: So trusting, I hand him my money before he hands me the ticket. And then he takes off running. I'm like chasing him through a department store across 7th Avenue from the garden. And he like escapes out the other doorway and I'm standing on the street. And someone takes pity on me and gives me a nosebleed or sells me a nosebleed ticket for cheap.
1: The Dead's big opener at the Garden in '83 was a song that was new to the band's repertoire since their last pass through town. And though it didn't have the big thump of Shakedown Street, it was still a party invitation. Tonight David the Mute.
2: Set list wise, certainly Wang Dang Doodle jumps out, and that's a brand new one.
1: Written by Willie Dixon, Helen Wolfe was the first to record Wang Dang Doodle for Chess Records in 1961, but it was Coco Taylor's 1965 version that made it a standard. I don't know. The Dead had soundchecked Wang Dang Doodle as far back as 1973, and Weir sang a verse in the middle of Satisfaction once. Over the summer of 83, it joined the rotation in Weir's first set blues slot that had emerged in 1980, joining Little Red Rooster and C.C. Rider.
2: There's a great one from a month earlier in Boise that was released as part of the Dave's Pick series.
1: Fouled.
12: I ended up going to the Dead with my pa- with my mom and my uncle. That's who took me because I would have been 12. I saw a Maiden with a childhood friend of mine and his older brother took us as the chaperone. But his his mom who was somewhat religious allowed us to go to the show. When she heard the name of the Grateful Dead, she we had tickets, she didn't let us go to the sh- that she wouldn't let them go to the show, which is hysterical. Iron Maiden was okay, but The Dead was not. (laughs) And it had to just because of the, you know, the skull logo and the name. So I went with my mom and my uncle. It was New York in the 80s. So it was still, you know, it it wasn't all like the cliche of what you expected at Dead show, but it was definitely a more mild crowd than Iron Maiden. I do remember clouds of pot smoke, which was amazing and making me very jealous at the time because I was with my mom. I was 12 it was pre all my, I mean, I was smoking pot at 12, but I wasn't like smoking pot when, with my folk, with my mom there. I remember the dancing. I don't remember where I sat, but pretty far back. And the dancing was pretty incredible and very like, you know, I was a city kid. I was like a Brooklyn kid, but I, but I also was obsessed with like 60s counterculture stuff, but I wasn't a hippie kid. It was just kind of like, I almost watched the people more than the show. Probably my seats weren't great either. So that kind of helped.
1: The core of the first set was made of songs from the 1971- 1972 era of the band, including the always Special Bird song.
3: Sleep in the stars. Don't. You cry. Try.
1: As we've said several times before, Darkstar sometimes seemed to be hiding out in birdsong in the 80s, and this version is no exception. the course of the two nights at the garden in 1983, the band played five new or newish songs yet unrecorded. A few they played last time through, but not all.
2: The new songs, the day jobs and Touch of Grey's and West LA's and Throwing Stones, they're very much more developed in 83. I'm a huge, huge Throwing Stones fan and Touch of Grey, same thing where the song stru- structure didn't change very much over the next few years. But the tempo did. It was a lot peppier. It was more, almost day jobby in terms of its peppiness. But I do feel that those songs adding to the repertoire. And then just a few months later in the spring of 83, they're adding Hell in a Bucket and My Brother Esau, which became a huge part of the next few years, at least. Uh, Hell in a Bucket till today. They still play it all the time.
6: Your imagination, from the food, for a taste of your elegant life.
3: There. at least i the ride, at least I'm the,
1: ride. Hey! At least I'm the ride Bobby's definitely enjoying the ride Written by Weir with lyricist John Perry Barlow Hell in a Bucket was an instant Weir power move Destined for In the Dark and an MTV video Co-starring Weir and a duck with a leather cock ring around its neck while arching our eyebrows in a John Belushi manner about the sexual politics of the song. It's got some pretty sick putdowns for the narcissistic 80's.
3: You analyze me to despise me you laugh when I in fun♫ You' become a date I will dance on your grave. If'm unable to dance, I will crawl across it. If unable to dance, I'll still crawl across it I'm
1: able to dance Like the other new songs. Hell in a Bucket would marinate for a few years before In the Dark. One upside of the dead taking a while to record their new songs is that they were able to spend more time as new fan favorites. But of course, they still got down to business with old fan favorites. Dan English of Morpheus Lights. We developed some different,
9: different moves and audience things that would go along with particular songs. Like when they started China Cat, I had a little thing where the, the lights slowly sort of went off into the audience, usually in red, but it, it would just depend on maybe what Candace had on stage at the time. And, you know, so there'd be different things that were similar
5: but we never had a set thing. We put colors on the back, I'll in the river crying, Leonardo, words from Alice, silver trombone. Rain, bill, of and legal, of
3: the
14: I can remember thinking that the China Rider didn't touch the one I'd seen two years before, but it was still awesome to hear it. The jamming out of I Need a Miracle and the jam out of Bertha into China Doll, those were all really well played. It was a really strong series of High energy, excellent Grateful Dead tunes culminating in a really gorgeous China doll.
1: It was unusual first for Bertha to appear in a second set jam slot and second to actually grow a jam. This is a pretty odd and cool moment. The song comes to an almost complete end, but Garcia opens a new thread, starts to pull on it, and everybody jumps right in. It's not even four minutes, but it's a richly developed open space. And it was even more unusual these days for one Jerry Garcia song to fall right into another but nobody was arguing. A great transition. Photographer Bob Mencken was down on the floor with his camera. Like tapers, he had to work to get his gear inside.
17: I worked at a graphic design studio in Manhattan, actually in the Ed Sullivan Theater building. I didn't start getting photo passes consistently until um, mid 85. Luckily, the camera came apart. We had the lens component and the body component. But the body was much smaller than the telephoto lens, obviously. So, telephoto lens, you pack down and it'd be like, hey, you're just happy to see me? <laughs> you know? In the body you could kind of you know, stick into your waistband and have your shirt over it or something like that. And then you had to be sometimes careful inside. If I was bringing my camera to a show, I would do everything I could to try to get up close. And if it was a show with tickets, ticket-seated tickets, tickets you try to work your way up and find that empty seat or, or have a friend switch with you who had a better seat. You know, it was a whole operation. Who had the good seats? and Or if it was GA, you'd have to try to get there really early put in the time to wait and then try to edge your way up even closer. I had wormed my way up kind of close earlier to that, but during the drums, I guess, because they did China Doll, then drums...
1: had cycled some new instruments through the arsenal that year, including what I think might be a balaphone in the section we just heard. Both the drums and space segments had expanded to luxurious lengths in 1983, the whole sequence lasting over 20 minutes on mini-night, including both at the Garden. If you know what's coming next, you can hear intimations of it throughout the night's late-space Garcia log. (music) ¶¶ Charlie Miller had heard the rumors, but wasn't believing them.
10: We got to the garden in 83 and people were saying, telling me that they teased St. Stephen the night before in Greensboro. I was like, yeah, whatever. Because every tour from spring tour in 82 all the way through to 87 was, oh, I heard the new album's coming out. Because, you know, it was in 82. And then they started doing like Day Job and Throwing Stones and Touch Ground. The new album's coming out.
1: But then came the night's big moment, Bob Mencken. And
17: then during the drums, I was like, I had enough of being like up close So I started, I was starting to pull back, you know, like work my way back. And then the first notes to St. Stephen, I was like, ah, reverse 180. Debuted in
1: 1968, And instantly, one of the Dead's most beloved songs, St. Stephen dropped from the band's repertoire in 1971, returned in 1976, and disappeared again in January 1979, the day after the band's garden debut. It was just short of five years since the last version. We certainly don't have any definitive answer as to why the Dead brought St. Stephen back when they did, whatever your dentist's dealer might have said. It could just be because they were playing the garden. And there's pretty much a reference to it right there in the first line of the song.
5: and
1: And as we used to say whenever a movie included its own name somewhere in the dialogue, we have achieved title.
17: Nothing beats those first notes of a breakout, you know. And then you always feel so good you were at a breakout. So my notes for that say 10-11-83 next to it, St. Stephen exclamation point.
6: And the place just blew up when St. Stephen started. I mean, it was just, I mean, you can hear it on the tapes, but when you feel that wind going by the hairs on the back of your neck because the crowd is collectively gone, you know, just there was nothing like it. It was incredible.
14: The crowd noise at the beginning of St. Stephen was unbelievable. It definitely drowned out the band for a while. And it was joyous. It was fun. about
3: your penny, talk
5: about your, panty talk about your heels. One man gathers what another man feels. Dean Heiser. From the
10: first note, does Fans went bonkers and raised the roof and energy level on the garden to which I've never experienced it since. I remember sitting next to a guy, he was about six foot five, 260 pounds. When they played St. Stephen, he was balling like a baby and he made sure he
1: hugged everybody in the row. He was exhilarated. Dan English of Morpheus Lights.
9: That first. Year that I was doing moving lights was the year that they played first Saint Stephen in a while at the Madison Square Garden. So when they started going into it, I said, "Oh, what's this?" You know, Kenneth says, "Oh my God, it's Saint Stephen," and then the crowd, the roar of the crowd, was overwhelming. It was, it was, it just, just sent tingles through. It was so loud like a jet engine. That's what it sounded like. Fortunately, I, I didn't do as good a job lighting St. Stephen then as I do now.
1: <laughs> Let's rewind and let Jim Wise's audience tape capture that incredible rush from the beginning of the song. Imagine Dan and Candace trying to communicate through their headsets under this. Mm-hmm. ¶¶ excitement even made it to taper Jim Wise, who was very busy at the time making his tape of the show.
18: In 83, I was probably more back at the board and on a stand, and those were different mics and only for one night. I don't know why. This was the most important thing to me at the time, just going to these shows and making the recordings was everything that my entire life revolved around it for quite a while. It was just really, really all-encompassing. Getting that, uh, I, did, I didn't even get to enjoy the show until I got, got home and started listening to it. Except for something like, oh, Jesus Christ, the are St. Stephen. Uh, but other than that, I was just you know, busy in, in my own la-la land of taping to really be uh, in the here and now of enjoying the show. All I can remember about that show is the brightness and the vibrancy of it and the incredible excitement of the fact that they were playing St. Stephen in New York City. Anything that they would do in New York and at the Garden had a little bit of an extra zest and an extra boost to it.
17: So long, he's got to it home. It was just it was a powerful, powerful version. And if I had to list moments, great moments of Grateful Dead in my life, that was certainly one of them.
6: It was anticipated and appreciated by everybody, and we just couldn't believe it. Oh.
1: didn't go into the 11, but St. Stephen was back. Jim Wise's tapes would circulate quickly, but not as quickly as the news. Out West, phones started ringing. Mary Eisenhart was a Bay Area head.
18: It was during the, when the dinosaurs were playing. Uh Uh-huh. And they had, they were playing a show at Wolfgang's. And at the set break, we were all down in the basement on the payphones because on the East Coast they had just brought Saint Stephen out of mothballs and, <laughs> and, 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 and there were people this is all pre cell phone pre anything and we're like they played what yeah. you know. But that's how it was. I mean yeah. people on the East Coast called you at a payphone in the basement of wolf games yeah,
4: <laughs> to tell crazy. you that they were playing Saint Stephen.
1: Corey Arnold is the proprietor of the site's Lost Live Dead, Hooterolan and other projects.
4: I started dating my wife in Spring 83. Not very many people knew. I mean, my family knew and my friends knew, but it wasn't, it was a big thing. And she knew I liked the Grateful Dead, but didn't really approve, but whatever. And we're at her house and I was still at the level where other than like, maybe my sister, nobody has my girlfriend's phone number. Right. You know, we're not that far yet. Right. And her phone ring and she said, it's for you, which is, like, unheard of. And it was my friend calling from the lobby of Madison Square Garden to tell me they played St. Stephen. He shouted at the top of his lungs, they played St. Stephen, so loud my wife could hear it. And then and he hung up, and she said, what was that? And I explained, I said, that was Bobby calling from the Madison Square Garden um, to tell me the Dead played Saint Stephen, she's like, okay. I said I gotta call Josh, who was our mutual friend, and I called him, and his line was busy because Bobby had called him next. And was, <laughs> who are these people?
1: To answer Corey's future wife's question, people like Corey and his East Coast friend Bobby were the energy cores of the Grateful Dead information network in 1983. And at the center of the diffuse and ongoing research efforts of deadologists, that would soon fall together in works like Deadbase.
4: He was like the most connected guy, a real hustler, and I don't I mean hustler in a nice way, but I mean, in terms of finding tickets or knowing about shows. Or he was like way ahead with primitive technology. He bought every he bought every copy of the Village Voice in some flea market. And one day, the one time I visited New York, we spent the whole weekend looking through them and stumbled across the Feb 1270 Ungano's ad. So this is like doing archaeology with a spoon.
1: The mysterious ad for the February 1970 Dead show at the Upper West Side Club Ungano's, a show they probably didn't play, and one of the biggest rabbit holes in Lost Live Dead history. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. In the age before social media, Corey and his friends were part of a small, self-created social network, as he realized when he visited New York. I bet something like this has happened to other listeners.
4: We're sitting in Yankee Stadium, the three of us, talking about weirdos that we knew had met in dead shows. And we realized we were, all three of us, one was from L.A., I'm from San Francisco, and Bobby is from Manhattan. We were talking about the same guy. He would repeat what you just said. You'd say something to him. He'd say, oh, I saw the dead and they did trucking and something. Five minutes later, he'd say to you, I know a guy who saw the dead and they did trucking. Like, yeah, me, five minutes ago. And, uh, <laughs> but all three of us had met this guy in L.A., San Francisco, and Manhattan and knew about him. We didn't know his name.
1: St. Stephen would only be back briefly. One version a few days later in Hartford. Another on Halloween back home in San Rafael. And then gone for good. Rumors of the song's return circulated all the way through 1995. Information exchange and information hunting were just as important to the dead world as tapes, hoping to see that elusive song on the set list. David Lemieux.
2: There were tapers. There were the people who are like set list freaks who wrote down everything. They were just as diligent as we are. I would be so desperate, eager to get the, the set lists and there was no internet, I'm talking 87, 88, that the show would end, and I I would, I mean, my friends knew, I mean, I lived with my mom, So they knew not to call me at one in the morning, you know, crazed and and you wake my house up and say, oh, my God, they did Dark Star, whatever. Um, So they they knew not to do that. So I had no other way to find out. So uh, if I didn't know anybody specifically at a show or know what hotel they were staying at a couple of times, and I remember doing this at the Spectrum because I, I, I knew the hotel friends had stayed there before right in the parking lot, there was either Sheraton or a Hilton at the spectrum. And I remember calling a couple of times that hotel and getting the front desk on about midnight. And I said, Hey, uh, are there deadheads in your lobby? He goes, Oh yeah, they're everywhere. I said, could you put one on? He goes, well, who are you looking for? I said, it doesn't matter. Just put any deadhead on. And they, they'd say, okay, hold on a second. And I got this to work two or three times and they would pass the phone to some random deadhead. would be like, hello, is it my mom? And, uh, and so I would say, hey, uh, I'm calling from Canada, and I, can you tell me what they played tonight? And a couple of well, I know one time in particular, I got the full set list, and I got a little review. Oh, they opened with this great, you know, birth the Greatest or whatever it was, and then sometimes like, yeah, man, it was. I think they had China Rider, so there was a little more vague. But to me, at least, it was something. And now, I mean, well, now I'd be watching it live on on the Nugs uh, live stream. Eric Schwartz.
6: It wasn't uncommon to see a payphone off the hook, you know, where people would just call their friends and let them listen to the hallway, you know, but it, it, it wasn't uncommon at all, especially with those calling cards.
2: <laughs> I had a friend at the garden in 88 when they did the, the two week run culminating with the rainforest show. A friend of mine, Pat Crosley, somehow, I have no idea how he did this, but he went to the, the, the two weeks of shows with no tickets, got into every show but he somehow got his way into a private box at the garden. One of the, like the, the VIP boxes. And he, I'll never forget this. He did call my house about 10 at night. I don't remember what show it was. They did morning Dew twice in that run. I think it was the second one. And he called from the private box and then let the phone hang off the balcony of the private box. And it just, I mean, we talk about bad audience tapes from, you know, 1971, whatever. I have never heard audio quality so bad, I could just make out what song it was. And the thought occurred to me for a split second to run and get something to record this through the telephone. And I didn't do it because the sound, but I got to hear the dead play Morning Dew live with, without a doubt, the worst quality I've ever heard. I've heard some bad audience tapes. I'll never forget that 88 Morning Dew, Pat, hanging the phone off the balcony. And my mom would come into the room and I'd be sitting there and my mom said, well, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm grateful that let her play live. She didn't understand what was going on. Anyway, the
1: point we're getting at here is that, dude, they totally played St. Stephen. Bob Minkin.
17: 10-11-83 possibly has my favorite version of throwing stones in that one. Which, you know, everybody talks about St. Stephen, of course, but that throwing stones, man, they were still probably all coming off the St. Stephen high. <laughs>
14: Throwing stones was—I don't know if it was the first time I'd heard it, but it was new-ish to me. And it was before they had settled on the very Samson-like instrument break, right? They didn't didn't have that Samson and Delilah, Delilah-like Jerry part, which which I felt like I saw at every Grateful Dead concert for the rest of my life, you know. Um, but I remember—I remember liking the. It was kind of a crescendoing jam.
2: I'm a huge fan of Throwing Stones, you might have noticed. By 83, it's already a 10 or 11 minute song because they're stretching it out, they're realizing where they can jam, the vocal power at the end. On the way out, somebody talking about the,
14: the Steven. everybody was talking about the Stephen breakout, and I said, you know, that Throwing Stones was pretty good too. And they looked at me like I was a little crazy. Eric Schwartz.
6: We might have stayed on Long Island because there was that faction... I can't imagine we got a hotel in the city, so I'm sure we we stayed at a local Long Island head's house. I'm almost positive.
1: The new lighting crew had recently updated their quarters, as Dan English remembers.
9: When I first got there, I thought that they didn't have any respect for us lower echelon kind of guys, because the promoter would like stick us in in these funky hotels and. Sometimes we'd get hung up on our transportation of the gig. But then I realized it wasn't about that. They had a very nonchalant way of dealing with things. And so one day, uh, Don Pearson, who was the head of the sound company that uh, worked with Healy, just said, well, what? You're not booking your own hotels and billing them after? We well, would stay at the Ritz with them. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> after that, we were at the Ritz too. And that was actually only because the, the dead had some connection to the Ritz-Carlton chain or something. And they were getting their rooms at like next to nothing or something. But yeah, after that, we were at the, we were at the band's hotels with the, with the band.
1: But as low-key as the dead scene was in 82 compared to the rest of the world, it could still be a crazy bubble especially in New York
9: i know at the garden every one of those passes must have been given out cuz when you walk backstage there there were more people there it felt like than there were out front you're like you know and every anyone who was anyone you know was there from politicians to rock stars to you name it but they didn't get up on stage because to get up on stage, there was only ever one set of steps, and that one set of steps went right up by Robbie Taylor, Kid Candelaria, and Steve Barrish.
19: <laughs>
9: if you went up those steps, you better you better have a a really good reason to be there, and 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 the three of them would have to appreciate the fact that you were there. One time Robbie was was putting all the Grateful Dead passes in order or something in his road box and I saw like, huge stacks of these backstage passes for each show. I went, whoa, that's a lot of passes. He said, yeah. I said, well, how do you control that? And he said, well, look, there's 500 backstage passes printed for each show. And after they've been given out, there's no more. <laughs>
1: We've discussed how the Dead's touring was sometimes adjacent to other events, like the Summer Rainbow Gatherings. The band's October 1983 shows at Madison Square Garden intersected with a different annual rite, the Audio Engineering Society Conference. Attending that year were John and Helen Meyer, proprietors of Meyer Sound. Last episode, we heard about how the Dead had begun to use a crystalline new Meyer sound system on the road in the fall of '82. They had it with them in 83 as well.
19: When they were at Madison Square Garden, they had a whole system at Madison Square Garden, and um, they let us use it for a demo for AES. We brought a whole bunch of customers to Madison Square Garden in the afternoon, to tr- and we turned on the whole system, well, and we well, did it was. this amazing demo for everyone. We were working on with Stanford University. We were working on CDs are just coming out. And we want to do a test record because Sony agreed, along with Eric and Phillips, they all agreed that they wouldn't put any square waves on CDs because of the time smear of the aliasing filters and stuff like that. I go, Well, we can you guys can, let's do a CD ourselves. We'll publish it and we'll put a square wave on it. I mean, this is outrageous. That square waves can be fixed. I mean, they're just being lazy, you know. I mean, because you know, it's like, you know, so we'll put a square wave on it, we'll put some noises, we'll make it. But what I'd like to do is record something that goes very, very, very quiet. And build it up to say, uh, and they, and we talked about and they decided what they would do is they would do a cricket field that's near an airport. And when the jets take off, they would go over this field. And so what happens in this recording takes about 10 minutes is it starts out this little cricket sound. Uh and you hear the crickets and then you hear this kind of something in the background, at very low level. You can't quite determine what it is. The crickets stop chirping, and then pretty soon the birds stop, and you can tell it's some kind of machine sound, but still very, very low level. It builds and builds and builds, and pretty soon you can start to hear the whine. It's an engine of some kind. And it gets louder and louder and louder and then it just swoops overhead. So we went from this very, very low level sound to shaking massive
13: square Garden in full power.
10: Everyone
19: ducked when the whole thing went over there, the sound went over their head. And I said, this is what digital can
1: bring us if it's done well. I mean, this is you cannot do this analog. And
19: that it? was Dan Healy who gave us the permission to do that.
1: The relationship between the dead and Meyer Sound was only just beginning. The engineers cleared out in time for the show that night. John Leopold.
7: I missed the first show because my mother, who was, uh, I love my mother, but she made an unexpected trip. She told us a couple of weeks beforehand that she was going to be in the area and she was going to come to Pittsburgh and so had to be there for that. I was uh, very disappointed to hear that they play the St. Stephen on the show I didn't go to, but the show I did go to was
1: amazing. It was a different age of commercial air travel. Bob Minkin.
17: We had cars and, you know, we had a little bit of money and we were able to travel to shows, especially when People's Express started that low cost airline. I read it about- I read an article about People's Express and the Grateful Dead, how People's Express were responsible for the massive Grateful Dead fans to get to see them in multiple cities far from home because it was unbelievably cheap to fly on People's Express.
1: That was probably Corey Arnold's piece, The Grateful Dead and the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast.
17: I remember going down to Norfolk, Virginia, in 82, and it was like $17 to fly there. The plane would be full of fans going to the show and we'd be snorting coke, you know, all of that dash thing. John Leopold.
7: I knew how to get from Newark to the show. I took the bus in, and I think it let you, let you off really close to Penn Station. So we were right there, basically. And then all you had to do was wander a little bit, and you would run into somebody that you knew. And I knew that Rick and uh, Lou Medvin and his brother, Barry, and, and some other friends were there. So you just kept an eye out for him. It was super exciting to, to go to New York anytime you went to New York, right? So that was great. And Madison, it was the first time I was at Madison Square Garden. So that was, you know, Madison Square Garden has, a, has its own reputation as a historic venue and I went in there and met up with a bunch of uh, friends, heads that, that, that I had uh, met already from tour. Some were from Harrisburg. Our friend Ricky D was there. Some were some other people that we had met along the way. The New York crowd was incredibly excited. And of course, because of the St. Stephen the night before, there was a great anticipation. And the set was fantastic. Will I
5: marry me or
7: so many different communities and and so much you know new yorkness but when you came to the garden for a dead show it was the it was the dead it was the deadhead community it really felt different because you were you were among your people and it felt incredibly relaxed and you saw so many familiar faces and if there were cops around or people hassling there was always a great group of people who you could be with. You didn't feel alone when you were a dead crowd in New York City, and so that you know that was that was really fun. And as for someone like me, you know, I'm a twin. Uh, I shared the womb. I went to the same. I was going to the same college with my twin brother. We had seen uh, up to that point, up to '83, we had seen every Dead show together. So '83 was the first time that I we were trying things on our own. So he went to a couple of Dead shows. I went to uh, this show without him. That was a pretty new experience for me. And so to be among friends and feeling totally comfortable being 18 in New York City, that was a great experience. Run me
3: out in the cold place. Run me out in the cold.
7: I remember where we were for the show, and my tape at the time, the way I wrote the first set was Cold Rain and Phil, Mingle Phil, Ramble on Phil. I just saw Phil was just very present. might have had reserved seats. We always, we never sat in our seats. We never had really good seats to begin with at that point. And so we would go someplace where we could dance. And I didn't like going outside in the halls. That wasn't a place you could do with Madison Square Garden. So we'd usually be towards the back and you would just start seeing everybody you knew. And that was a that was the great community of of folks that stayed for years for, for the dead because there were people that you knew by first name that you would see on a regular basis and know something about, but you you didn't really know them other than they were your show buddies. And that was the guy you saw or the girl you saw at the back of the hall dancing to The Grateful Dead. I remember being in the back towards the top. That was, you know, you didn't have to fight for seats. They were playing Hell in a Bucket. And I found something that Dave had written at the time on some print not thing where he said, the name of the new tune is Eloquent Eyes. Right, because you know, we didn't know what and you could see shadow boxing. We weren't sure what that brother Esau was called.
1: also new to the dead's repertoire since the last time at the garden was my brother esau another weird barlow joint
2: esau was a big part for four years it was a a song that really um it changed every single time they played it
3: esau,
2: Sometimes the night I dream, he's still that man. Box in the apocalypse, My brother Esau, I'm very glad one of those snuck on here because I love Esau. I saw it at four of my first six dead shows and then they dropped it. They, they never played it again and I, I love it. I think it's a quirky song. It never was played the same way twice. And I know every dead song has never played the same way twice, but this one really wasn't. And sometimes it would open with the whole band coming in at once with that big explosion. Sometimes it would uh, open with just the drummers with this nice little beat. And sometimes Weir would start strumming the song. And then you've got the one on In the Dark that starts with helicopters coming in. My brother Esau
1: would make it to In the Dark, but only on the cassette version. It lasted in The Dead's repertoire through the fall of 1987. Just like The Dead worked on different timescales and economic matrices than other popular bands, the material evolved and still evolves in its own way. Bob Weir revived My Brother Esau in 2014 and, despite being associated with The Dead's best-selling album, continued to tinker with it, recording the newest version with the Wolf Brothers on Live from Colorado, available from Third Man Records.
3: By anyway. Eat worth all so much. Till sometimes
4: at night I dream He's to the hair man. Shadow box in the apocalypse.
1: Wandering the land. I kinda like the bits about roller skates and selling real estate in LA though probably because they're Trey 1983. Weir got another showcase in the first set that was coming into its own in the 80s, more than a decade after it had been recorded for Weir's solo debut, Ace. Looks like Rain now built to a space for some cool Garcia, as well as for Weir to occasionally work Blue during his extended vocal outro. Dan English liked lighting it.
9: And I also like doing Looks Like Rain, because at the end, we had very limited uh, controls on the lights in these days. But one thing we could do is we could put a breakup pattern either in the light or not in the light. So I would put it in the light, and this is before they rotated. You couldn't rotate them nowadays. You can rotate them. So what i do is I'd point the light straight down. I just pan them back and forth. And that would give you the idea that the gobo was rotating on the stage.
1: The second set opened with another Deadhead favorite that hadn't been in the band's rotation the last time they were through New York. <laughs> The dense and tricky Help on the Way, Slipknot, Franklin's Tower Suite, opened Blues for Allah in 1975, but barely lasted a year in the band's rotation after they returned to the road in 1976.
2: Help Slip Franklin's had come back in the spring of 83 after a six-year absence, which is amazing. You know, Help Slip Franklin's a pretty complex piece of music, Help on," oh, Slipknot in particular. But what I liked about it, I always, Franklin's Tower, in the non-help Slipknot eras, which is to say from late 77 through 83, and then from 86 and 87 and 88, in those years when they weren't playing help on the way in Slipknot, Franklin's Tower was this kind of free agent, and it never really had a home. It had some common places coming out a stranger to open a show, coming out a half-step to open a show. I think I saw playing in the band into Franklin's tower once to open a second set. It wasn't very good. Uh, I was very short and I just felt that it was always missing something. It would be kind of like the dead all of a sudden dropping China cat and continuing to play. Uh, I know you Rider quite often, but not really sure where it belonged. I, I always felt I, it's almost like I felt bad for Franklin's tower because it had lost its friends. It had lost its home. And then when it came back, For those two years, 83, 84 into the fall of 85, I guess September 85 was the last one. And then it it felt like all was right in the world again. This is an incredibly well played, very dense and dynamic Slipknot in particular.
9: There were some major cues that you never want to miss, like, you know, the transition into uh, Franklin's Tower, say, or something like that. You don't want to miss that cue. They went into Franklin's Towers, the crowd was bouncing. And so then the arena started bouncing. So we're in the middle of the floor and the whole thing is going like this, up and down. And so now I'm like literally holding the lighting consoles down so that they don't slide off the table.
1: The core of the second set was a 55-minute he's gone into drum space, into trucking, into Black Peter. At the Garden in 1982, the band had played the Throwing Stones-Not Fade Away combo for the first time, which is pretty much how it had stuck since then. Tonight was a now-rare Not Fade Away set-closer, but it was the encore from this show that most people probably remember.
17: And 1283 next to it, Revolution exclamation
1: point. Possibly, like the cover of Satisfaction played in '82, this falls into the category of never actually rehearsed. Also big news was that Phil Lesh was joining Bob Weir to sing backup vocals. Big ups to Phil and Weir for doing the shooby-doo-op part, which I think technically makes this a cover of Revolution 1 from the White album, not just your regular old Revolution, the B-side to the Hey Jude single. You know it's gonna be,
2: When we do our Dave's Picks releases and we put the credits together, there are entire, not quite decades, but very long, years long chunks where Phil simply doesn't get a vocal credit. Phil stopped singing 77, 78, but on Truckin', he would sing, he'd sing it. You can hear him really belting it out on some 77, 78 versions of Truckin', particularly 78. He's like all over those truckins. And I love it because you get to put Phil as a vocal credit on there. But that's, I think, a really nice way to cap the box because just a few months later, in 84, Phil started, he got his own mic. And, and that's when his microphone came back and he could sing backups anytime he wanted. And then he could start bringing in Give Me Some Lovin' with Brent. Keep on growing.
1: Bob Minkin got back down front for the encore.
17: I only saw them sing together at the same mic once before. And that was it. At- either Blacksburg, Virginia, or or William and Mary in in April 78, when when Phil, Bobby, and Donna sang at the same mic, or maybe it was Jerry, Bobby, and Donna. But unfortunately, my shot is very overexposed, so I I never put that out there, but but they were singing together at the same mic. So it was very unusual to see Bobby and Phil at the same mic, people next to me, like when I got the shot of Weir and Phil singing at the mic together, They're like, did you get that? Did you get that? I'm like, I hope so. You know, I don't think so. Because, you know, everything was manual, manual everything, manual exposure, manual focus. I did all the black and white myself, all the the developing. I have a dark room in my house. And then I come home and the next day I develop them. And while the as soon as I was able to take the negatives out of the fixer, as it was called, hold them up still wet, you know, in the light, like scanning them.
1: The shots of Lesh and Weir sharing a microphone did, in fact, come out. You can see them in the new in and out of the garden box. It would become one of Bob's most famous sequence of photos. For Dan English, the 1983 fall tour made both a lifelong impact but also an immediate one the following spring.
9: I definitely had some great times there during that, and it changed my life. It changed my life and the course of my life and you know what I did. I took the initial moving lights down to install in a, rehearsal studio for the Jackson Victory Tour. And my boss said, we'll get someone else to work with Candace. I want you to do this thing with the, the Jacksons, blah, blah, blah. It's really important, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And after about a week of, of that, <laughs> trying to put that together, I was like, "Nope, can't do it. I <laughs> said, so the Dead Tour is starting, like, next week. Uh, I'm coming back to do that. And we got, a, we got a, my good friend Dave Chance, who later became uh, Candace's board op after myself. He went down and he did the Victory Tour and had a great time.
1: Dan English also witnessed one of the most important changes in Dead history. By 1983, the tapers were everywhere. And more specifically, their microphones were everywhere. And even more specifically... They were blocking the view of front of house engineer Dan Healy.
9: I think on that 83 tour is when, that, when Dan started, like, this is out of control. i got got to re- regiment this. And you know how it happened was, I forget which arena we were at, but we're all set up. We're on a riser that's only maybe a foot and a half tall or something like that huh? in the middle of the arena. And so for the show, everything's great. And as soon as the house lights went out, all these people started raising their mic stands and they did so right in front of us. So, Dan Healy couldn't see the stage, Candace couldn't see the stage, I couldn't see the stage.
1: The next year would be another year of innovations in the Grateful Dead's world. In the spring, they would launch the Rex Foundation, a charitable wing to help organize the band's numerous benefits. In the fall, they introduced the tapers section, actually originally referred to in the band's meeting minutes as the tapester section. How's that for a different identity, all you tapesters out there? Both would become new corners of the dead economy. On the fan side, 1984 would also see the introduction of both Blair Jackson and Regan McMahon's fanzine The Golden Road, as well as a new tour publication, Terrapin Flyer. The dead kept on touring, perhaps obviously, though they didn't return to Madison Square Garden for a few years, playing the Meadowlands in New Jersey in 1984 and 1985. In 1986, John Sherr would book them a three-night Madison Square Garden return, three years to the day of their last visit. But Jerry Garcia fell ill, and the band canceled their fall tour. When the band came back, they were big enough to play Brendan Byrne Arena and Madison Square Garden. And then a few years later, Giant Stadium and Madison Square Garden. But that's a different box set. And now's the part where out of the garden we go. John Cher.
16: Once the Meadowlands Arena was built, there was another place to play. And remember, they played a lot and wanted to play a lot. I'll never forget. I had a conversation with Jerry once after probably the first outdoor stadium tour. At the end of the tour, and it was hot. It's hard to, to do a summer outdoor stadium tour. Everybody was pretty pooped. And the last show. He asked me to come over. They used to have these like little tents in the back of the stage that they hung out and they weren't really dressing room people. And he said, uh, John, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks and then let's do a Garcia band tour. And I said, are you fucking nuts? You just did 15 stadiums or whatever. Take it easy. Take a little bit of time. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, John, let me tell you something. I play my guitar 365 days a year. There are no days that I don't play my guitar, all right? So I might as well get paid for
5: it.
0: We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, Alan Trist, David Lemieux, Eric Schwartz, John Leopold, Elijah Funk, Alex Ross, Dan English, Charlie Miller, Mark Rodriguez, Lee Greenfield, Johnny Dwork, Eric Pooley, Rich Farrell, Larry Price, John Sher, Bob Minken, Dan Heiser, Jim Wise, Mary Eisenhart, Corey Arnold, Helen Meyer, and John Meyer. Extra special thanks to friends David Gans and Blair Jackson for contributing audio from their interview archive. And thanks very much to you for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and keep your tour stories coming by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. See you at the next show. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.